Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love them to be a part of what we have happening with our Vine Kids <clears throat> ministry. Also, if you have middle schoolish, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade age kiddos, we got uh, stuff happening in the back area for them as well. Um, so if you are here for the first time, again, I want to remind you how blessed we are to have you with us. Um, we are glad that you are here. You've come at a really excellent time. We are into week 51 of the Gospel of John. We have made it all the way through this incredible movement of ministry into the last week of the life of Christ. And John is going to spend the majority, actually the remainder of our, our gospel, uh, all the way to the end, focused on these few days. So we get about two years and 11 chapters, and then we get about five days in the remaining nine or so. And so John is focused on that. And the reason John's focused on that, as I mention every week, is that John is not interested and telling a history of the life of Christ. He's not interested in us knowing the details of Jesus' life as they just pertain to details. John's single focus and goal is that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God. His goal is to talk the incarnation, that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that he wants us to know that Jesus is God. And so everything in his gospel, and we're going to see that very clearly today, everything in his gospel is pointing us to the deity of Christ. And so this last week, of course, is paramount in that story. It's more than just parables that unfold. It's the very events that lead us to the cross, which lead us to the resurrection. And so John's gospel is, is very central in this um, this sort of theme in, in the last week of the life of Christ. So last week was Easter, and of course we celebrate on Easter the resurrection, not simply being an event in human history, but the resurrection being a person that Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? That in him we have life, and we celebrate that movement. And last week we stayed on course. We didn't jump ahead, and we examined Jesus on Thursday night. The night that we're going to see him today be betrayed, he does something extraordinary. And what we looked at last week, for those of you that were out, not here on Easter or visiting family, is we looked at this incredible moment where Jesus says that he shows his followers, those disciples that are in the room, the 12 of those guys, the full extent of his love. And if you remember, what he did is in that night in the upper room, they were in the uh, city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And Thursday had come, and it was a night that the Passover feast was to be shared, and Passover was the pilgrimage holiday that all Jews traveled to Jerusalem for. There were a couple others, but this was the big one. They went to celebrate God delivering them out of Egypt and to make a sacrifice for the sin of their entire families, and they celebrated with a, a meal together, the Passover meal. And uh, Jesus had come riding into town on the back of that baby donkey some four days or five days earlier, just as Zechariah foretold some hundreds of years before that. And it came to Thursday, and they made preparations for the Passover. And he gathered with his disciples in this upper room, and as these things were unfolding, John tells us that Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. What I talked about last week was the full extent of Jesus' love didn't come on the cross or didn't come at the resurrection. The full extent of Jesus' love, as John says, happened in that moment in that upper room where Jesus stands up, and he removes his outer garments, and he takes a towel, and he ties it around his waist, and he grabs a basin, and he begins to scrub the disciples' feet. And we, of course, talked about the significance of that and what that looked like, but Jesus went from disciple to disciple to disciple, even came coming to Judas and washing Judas's feet. And we explored last week the significance of the full extent of the love of Christ and what that looks like and how he calls us to love each other in that magnificent way. Well, this morning we're picking up in that exact same breath. In fact, we cut off mid-sentence, and we're going to pick up in that same breath of Jesus 
And everything is going to turn from this demonstration of the full extent of his love to his very betrayal by someone that he loves the most. And it's a sort of powerful paradigm, paradox, if you will, of Jesus' full extent of love that he has for humanity and humanity's betrayal of the God that came to give them life. And so we're going to continue that thought in John 13. If you've got it, I want you to open up there to chapter 13, verse 18 this morning. If you've got your Bible, if you don't have one, there should be one next to you. I, I sort of say this quite often. Bring it every week. We're going to be in it. I guarantee you, I promise you with all that I am, we will be in the Bible every single week. And if we're not, then you have permission to just get up and leave. So, um, because I wouldn't go to that church either. So we are going to be in it, bring it. I want you to know that I'm not making this stuff up. All right. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into John 13 um, together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place as a church family, as believers, united together by our common love for Jesus, the common grace that pours out over the mistakes and the failures and the sin in our life, and the fact that you have rescued us and redeemed us from all unrighteousness, that if we give our life to Jesus, Savior, Lord, you heal and you redeem and that's why we're gathered here we're not gathered here to to get holy points um, or to earn your love or merit something lord there's there's none of that we are just simply here because of your grace and lord the events that unfold today in the life of jesus or as we're going to look at in the life of jesus uh, are strikingly similar to things that have happened in our own lives as we talk about betrayal we talk about hurt um lord we come face to face with the idea that there is a God who understands our hurt and our pain. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make these pictures this, uh, this morning come alive, that they would just penetrate our heart and that we might find something new in a very familiar story. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you. However you need to whisper that, whatever you need to say, just ask him to teach your heart this morning to speak directly to you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you, in front of you, just anywhere. Pray for somebody else. Each week we do this, we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray that God would move in the life of someone else. We want to be a community that, that prays for each other. Lord, we ask that you would take this living and active word and that you would penetrate our hearts with it. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we do not take that lightly. And so, God, we ask you to teach us and reveal truth to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're picking up mid-sentence, and I'll, I'll go back and backtrack here in just a second. But let's read from 18 down, and then we'll... We'll pick up where we left off last week. So we're in, in 13, verse 18, and we're going to go down through, well, wherever we stop. Um, so I'm not referring to all of you. This is Jesus speaking. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts he who sent me. 
After he has said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss as to know which one he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, is the one whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the table or at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charged the money, some thought that he was telling him to go buy what he needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. So we're picking up in a mid-thought. <clears throat> so just to kind of give us a little bit of, of background, remember Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet. He had come to Peter. You remember he had made it to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, actually, unless I wash you, clean you, right? You could have no part of me. And then Simon says, okay, well then wash all of me, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. And, and Jesus has this little interaction with Peter where he says, look, if I wash you, you're already clean, although not all of you, because he was referring to Judas, right? Judas wasn't clean. And this is what he says in verse 15. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell the truth, no servant is greater than his master, no messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now, that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So he ends the foot washing kind of thought process, well, you will be blessed if you do them. And then that's where we left off last week. And this week in mid-sentence, he says, you'll be blessed if you do them, but I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares bread has lifted up his heel against me. So he says, listen, you will be blessed if you do this, but I want you to know that not all of you will be blessed, but I know the one that I have chosen, the ones that I've chosen, but there is one who will lift up his heel against me. So what Jesus is basically saying here, referring again, as he just did, that there is somebody in the room who is not clean, who is going to betray him. And Jesus says, I know the ones that I have chosen. And the reason this is important is because Jesus, right, chose the disciples as part of fulfilling God's incredible divine will. And he says, I know the ones I have chosen, but there is one of you that is going to lift up his heel against me. Why this is important is because Jesus did not choose the wrong disciple. So everything in this moment that we're going to be seeing is unfolding because it's part of God's ordained and incredibly powerful divine will. So Jesus is not surprised that Judas turned on him. He didn't choose 12 disciples and make one mistake, right? It wasn't like he said, I got them all, and then I blew it with Judas. He says, I know the ones I've chosen, and I know the purpose of the one that is going to lift up his heel against me. He's referring to Psalm 41, which we're going to get to here in a moment, where Jesus is quoting David. And David is basically crying out to God because he's saying, one of my close friends has betrayed me. Right? He has shared bread with me and lifted up his heel against me. And that, that phrase is kind of lost on us, but, but really what it means is an act of betrayal or a back, uh, an act that's about to become abuse. Maybe it comes from a horse 
that lifts up its back hind leg about to kick, or maybe out of Luke where he talks about shaking the dust off your feet. In any regard, it's just a, it's a statement about hurt and betrayal. And Jesus says, all of you, right, I know you, and all of you are part of this incredible will, even the one who was going to betray me, there is one of you that isn't clean. Right? But Jesus says, what I'm about to tell you, I want you to know is going to happen. And the reason I'm going to tell you about it is because I want you to have further evidence that when it does happen, you know that I am he, the one that has been sent by the Father. And if you accept the ones that I sent, then you accept me. And if you accept me who's sent by the Father, then you accept the Father. So Jesus says, I'm going to tell you in advance something that is about to happen so that you can believe that I am God. Right? And so he quotes from Psalm 41. And he basically says, this person that dips the bread, right, is the one who's going to betray me. And after he says this, he's troubled, and he realizes that most guys that are sitting there, all 12 of them, probably don't understand what he's actually saying. And so he just says it clearly. He says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. Which is really shocking. These guys have given up everything to follow Jesus. For three years, they have given up Lives and families and careers and stuff. They've been the, the cycle of public ridicule. They have been the threat of, under the threat of death from the Pharisees. Everything that they have given up for Jesus. And now Jesus is telling them that one of them is going to betray him. And they really can't believe it. In fact, there's probably that moment going through all of them that's going, is it me or who is it? Like, what's going on? And it tells us that John is reclining, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember, John always referred to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And he says the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining closest to him, right? So John's going, I was closest to Jesus, and, you know. We were laying there, because, you know, remember, they're not sitting at a table like, like we might do, like you and I might do. They were reclining. Special occasion meals in the Middle East were done at a table that was about 12 inches high, maybe even lower, and they had pillows laying around, and they would recline and share life, and that meal would last for hours. And so it's not the classic, you know, Da Vinci painting of the Last Supper that you see where they're all gathered on the table. Most likely it was these guys in sort of a laying on an elbow and eating shared food and just telling stories and sharing life. And John is laying next to Jesus or reclining next to Jesus. And then Simon Peter is over here who's not quite as close to Jesus. And they're all curious who he's talking about. And so Peter kind of motions to John, hey, come here, ask him who he's talking about, right? And John's like, I'm not going to ask you. He says, no, you ask you, ask him. So John goes, hey, Jesus. And he whispers to him, uh, who are you talking about, right? Because we're all basically really curious because none of them, of course, want it to be them. And so John asks Jesus. He says, Jesus, who is it that you are talking about? Who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one who I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the bread in the dish, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered him. It's almost as if Jesus gives him this piece of bread as one sort of last offering of life, like share life with me. Remember, sharing meals is sharing life. Share life with me, right? And, and Judas takes that bread, and as he does, he sort of utterly rejects Jesus as Savior, and, and even though we know that Satan has already prompted his heart, John makes it clear that at that moment, Satan fully enters into Judas. And Jesus looks at him and says, what you're going to do, just do it quickly. See, Jesus knows. He doesn't try and talk him out of it as sort of a further expression of his obedience to God's will. He doesn't do anything except simply say, 
what you're going to do, just do it quickly. Jesus knows what's about to unfold, and he knows that Judas, who he'd spent three years with, who he spent all these waking moments with, is going to be the one that hands him over to the high priest, and he knows what that death mob will do as they lead him back to be beaten and strung up on an instrument of Roman torture and humiliation, and ultimately death, and ultimately having all the sin of humanity, the wrath of God, placed on him. And so he says, what you're going to do, just do it quickly. No one at the meal understood. I mean, it was so hard for them to get it, right? I mean, it makes sense to us, we know the whole story, but these guys didn't believe for a second that any one of them was going to betray Jesus. They had given their whole lives to follow him with everything that they had, Judas included. They didn't believe at all that this could happen. And so when Jesus, Jesus gives a bread to Judas, right, he basically says, you are the one, and they don't get it. They think that maybe Jesus says this to him because he's in charge of the money and needs to go buy some more food or maybe give something to the poor. Like they can't wrap their minds around one of them giving away their Lord and their rabbi to death. They had protected him. They had walked with him. They had shared life. They had given everything they had for Jesus. And they couldn't fathom that somebody would actually do that. And so they just, they don't get it. And then verse 30 says, As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now there's some really amazing things at play in this text. And I want you to see a few of them because they're really important for our understanding, not just of what's happening theologically and where this is leading us towards the cross, but with understanding that we have a God um, that identifies with a lot of our hurt and a lot of our struggle and a lot of our pain. But the first thing we want to see comes right in the, the beginning of that section where we understand that this great and sort of awful um, betrayal was actually for God's glory. Now, I know that should go without saying, but it's actually really important to say out loud that this great and awful betrayal was actually for God's glory. And we know that coming out of verse 19. Verse 19 says this, I am telling you now, right about Psalm 41, which I'll get to in a moment, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. All right, so I'm telling you all this so that when I am betrayed and all these things unfold, you will have further reason to believe that I am he. Now, those of you that have been paying attention, right, over the past weeks and weeks and weeks will recognize that there's some really powerful things at play in the way that Jesus phrases statements. So his whole goal is that I want you to see that this great and awful betrayal will actually give evidence that I am he. Now that I am he statement is actually a play on words. And it's a play on words that goes back to John 8, which goes back all the way into Exodus chapter 3. Now if you remember in John 8, Jesus was having this sort of debate with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said to him, they said, do you believe that you are greater than Abraham, right? Because there is no way any good Jewish rabbi or any good Jew, period, would claim to be better than Abraham, who was the father, right? Abraham was the father of a nation. And they said, do you believe that you're better than Abraham? Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples or to the Pharisees there? He says, before Abraham was, I am. And we talked at length weeks and weeks ago when we looked at John 8 about Jesus' comment, which makes, takes him all the way back to Exodus 3. When Moses, appear, when Moses is, is basically going to appear before Pharaoh, and he says to God, he says, God, who do I tell people 
that you are, why I'm even coming to them to ask them to let your people go. Who do I tell them sent me? And God says, right in that moment, the burning bush, Exodus 3 says, tell them that I am who I am. In other words, I am the great I am. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, right? And then here, in all of this, he looks at the disciples and he says, I am going to tell you something so that when it's fulfilled, you will know that I am he. It's a play on words to say, I am the I am. Everything that Jesus did points to his deity. What he's trying to show the disciples here is I'm going to give you even further evidence. I'm going to show you how prophecy written by David, right? And Psalm 41, when it's fulfilled, will give further evidence to the fact that I am God. This great and awful betrayal was actually for God's glory. And the reason that's important is because humanity did not rise up and overthrow and kill God. It was not an accident and it was not a surprise. Jesus didn't call 12 disciples, get all the way through three years of ministry, show up in the upper room, and then realize that one of them was actually a trickster and is going to betray him, and he's caught completely off guard, and now the entire movement of redemptive history hangs in the balance because Jesus made a mistake calling one of the wrong disciples, and that humanity overthrows God, and God has to come back to win. That's not unfolding at all. What's unfolding is that God has set in motion all of redemptive history, and included in that redemptive history is this incredible betrayal, which is actually part of his glory, and because it's evidenced through David and made fulfilled through Jesus, it is to show us that he is the great I am. Jesus is not some wandering rabbi. He is the incarnation. He is God in the flesh, and here is further evidence that he is the great I am. All this has happened so that you will know that I am Jesus' entire existence, right, was to show the world that he was God in the flesh. And this is what John wants us to see. Humanity doesn't win against God. Sinful humanity, Judas says that expression does not overthrow Jesus in an act of incredibly kind of human surprise. It doesn't happen. God knows and he sets all these redemptive pieces, including his betrayal and his crucifixion, as part of his redemptive glory. And Jesus being betrayed by those that loved him the most was actually for his glory. So he says, I am he, right? So it's important for us to keep that in mind, right? Humanity will never overthrow God. God submits to the person of Jesus Christ, to his own will, for his glory. So this great and awful betrayal is actually for the glory of God so that we can see that Jesus is the great I am and that he's not some great moral teacher that wanders around the countryside saying moral things that you and I should hang on to some 2,000 years later and our sort of pantheon of religious kind of establishment so that we can try and be as moral as we can. Jesus, in all of his humanness, was God's glory on full display. And therefore, he deserves and demands our worship. And not just to pay attention to his teaching, but to submit to his lordship. Because like God, he is the great I am. So we know that that's at play. We also know in this text, which is, uh, is also really powerful, at least to me, is that Jesus knows 
the pain of the human heart. Now, oftentimes we think sometimes that God is like this holy sheriff that sort of sits up in this throne up on high, and, and he doesn't understand quite what we're walking through. I mean, because how could he? He is God, fully kind of glorious and magnificent. How could he understand the hurt of the human heart? Well, the author of Hebrew tells us in chapter 2, he says, because he himself suffered when he was being tempted, he knows how to help those who are being tempted. There's all kinds of stuff in Scripture that point to the fact that Jesus understands our suffering, but none is probably as powerful to me as this. Jesus quotes Psalm 46. All right, I'm going to read Psalm 46 to you real quick, just a part of it, because it's really powerful. David is, he's in anguish, and he spends the first part of the psalm crying out to God for forgiveness, and then he spends the second part of the psalm kind of crying out to God, saying, God, my heart is broken. David was at a place where his enemies and people that he trusted were spreading vicious lies about him. They were telling people that he was really ill and close to dying, and essentially he couldn't be king anymore, and he was really hurt by it. And Psalm 41, 7 through 10 says this. It says, All of my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying that I have a vile disease and it's beset me, and that I will never get up from the place where I lie. Even my close friend, who I trusted and who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, we don't think of Psalm 41 as a messianic psalm. And a messianic psalm is really one that we know that all of the words point to the coming Messiah. All right? There's several of them. But, but David's, all of Psalm 41 is really about David's cry, but there's a piece in there which Jesus grabs onto and says, this was written to be fulfilled by me. And he quotes that same psalm here as he's telling the disciples that not all of them are clean. Right? He's basically saying that the one who shares his bread has lifted up his heel against me, which is what David has said. One who was closest with me, who I have shared bread with, has turned on me. Now, in order to understand the real gravity of this, we have to go back and understand the depth of sharing meal and sharing food in terms of sharing life in ancient Middle Eastern culture. We're very pedestrian in our culture when it comes to food, right? Fast food on every corner, we literally eat for the sake of just putting something in our body. Very seldom do we eat for the sake of sharing life. Middle Eastern culture was built around, and a lot of Latin American culture is the same way, built around sharing life, which is around sharing food, because food is the very source of life. And in the ancient times, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't always abundant. You couldn't just run down to the market and pick up another loaf of bread. Because food was hard to acquire. There wasn't great ways to refrigerate it. It didn't last forever. When you shared food with someone else, you were basically sharing, I am sharing my very life with you because this is what sustains us and we don't know if tomorrow we will have it. It's almost why in the Lord's Prayer we see Jesus saying, Lord, we should be praying to give us our daily bread. Enough for today because we don't know what tomorrow holds. So every day I wake up and I say, Jesus, give me what I need to survive and to live today. Today and trusting you. Sharing meal was sharing life. And not only that, it was this extension of family. So when you shared food, when you invited someone to your table, or you went to their table, you were sharing your very life with them. You were reclining, you were spending time, you were investing in them. You were basically saying, I trust you with my life, with my kids, with my family, with my food, with my very sustainability, I trust you. Right? Lost on us. Right? Because, hey, we've eaten lunch with a thousand people. 
They may betray us or they may not. I may see them again or I may not. It doesn't make a difference. But in that culture, it was a huge thing. And to be betrayed by an enemy was one thing, right? It happens and it hurts and it's no good. But to be betrayed by someone that you trusted, like today, it's one of the most heart-wrenching, kind of difficult things that a human can walk through. If you've ever had somebody that you trusted, that you truly, truly trusted, turn on you, betray you, make up lies about you, you felt the hurt of the human heart. Every one of us has been there. Most likely every one of us has been the betrayer on some time too. But the truth is we know what David is feeling. David basically says, this person, right, this close friend of mine, my close friend whom I trusted, who shared my bread, he turned on me. And he's crying out to God saying, Lord, my heart hurts. This is the passage that Jesus chooses to use when talking about Judas. Essentially saying what David said. My close friend, whom I trusted, who I'm dipping and sharing bread with, that's the one who is going to betray me. I find it incredibly comforting, and, and tragic, but incredibly comforting that Jesus understands this. Because every one of us at some point in time has walked through this kind of hurt. We've walked through someone who we thought we knew, who turned out to be someone else or that betrayed us or that, that spread a lie about us or that said gossip about us behind our back or that, that, it, that went that way. And I've been a part of some of the most brutal hurt and it's happened in the context in the walls of the church. It's not just out there. The things that people say about you to other people behind your back are part of this deeply brutal painful reality of trusting people and watching them stomp on your heart. And Jesus, like David, right? They've experienced this. And Jesus knows the pain of human hurt. And I find this comforting because when I go, God, it hurts that someone betrayed me or that they abandoned me, that Jesus isn't just like, look, get over it, man. Worse things could happen. He understands what that feels like. Judas had walked with him for three years. Jesus had given his very best to Judas. Judas had connected with the other disciples. They had shared life. They had shared food. They had shared death threats. And oftentimes we imagine God as this sort of holy God up there that's like, look, shake it off. I know you're hurting, but look, a lot worse could happen, right? You're told that by your parents. I know you're hungry. There are kids starving in Africa. Okay, I'll eat my noodles or whatever. The truth is, sometimes we imagine God is like that. Like, he's like that football coach, right? Do some push-ups. Rub some dirt on it. Blood makes the grass grow. Pain's weakness leaving the body. Let's go. That's not how God interacts with us. He knows what our hurt is. He walked through it. We saw this happen a few chapters ago. Do you remember in in John chapter 11? where Mary and Martha are broken over their brother Lazarus who has died. And we talked about the the hurt and the anger that Jesus has towards death. But do you remember that he weeps with them? Even though Jesus knows that Lazarus is not going to end in death, that he's going to raise him from the dead, Jesus weeps with them and he breaks over their loss. And in the same moment as we see here, Jesus understands the hurt of human pain. And I find that comforting. You're not alone. The guy or girl next to you may not know what you're walking through, but you have a God who does. 
And he's not indifferent to your pain. He knows the sting of betrayal. He knows the hurt of humanity. So we know that. And then finally what I want you to see here is that once again we see this incredible battle between light and darkness, between life and death. Now remember, John does nothing by accident. John's whole goal as a gospel writer is to not paint a perfect, detailed story. We're actually going to see this in the next few weeks when John takes a whole bunch of things kind of out of chronological order to show us some stuff. But he does everything very intentionally. And listen to the last part of this and how he wraps this up. What you are about to do, do quickly, he says to Judas, right? The other disciples don't know what he's doing. They think he's going to go give something to the poor or buy some more food. And this is what happens in verse 30. As soon as Jesus, Judas had taken the bread from the hand of Jesus. He went out, and it was night. John is not interested in telling us detailed stories. He's not interested in painting pictures so that we understand what things looked like. John is very intentional in all the words that he's choosing to point us to the deity of Christ, and he says, Judas took the bread, Satan entered him, and he left, and he went out away from Jesus, and it was night. All through this gospel, we have seen the epic battle of light and darkness of life and death. From John chapter 1, where John the gospel writer tells us that Jesus is the light that has come into the world, that he pierces the darkness, and the darkness doesn't like it because it shines light on it. To John chapter 8, when Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. He who walks in me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It is sad and tragic to think about Judas' life. The Judas, having spent three years walking in the light, Jesus, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will never walk in darkness. Walking in the light, in relationship and in life with Jesus. And in that moment where he utterly denies the Savior in Jesus, right? He walks out of the upper room and into the darkness. And there's something deeply tragic when I read that sentence. That Judas wasn't just walking out into the night sky. He wasn't just walking out and John wanted to make sure that we all knew that it was after sundown. Judas is most literally walking out of the light of life and into darkness that leads to death. John is saying here essentially that Jesus is the light of the world. He adds life and light to everything. That the way that we see life and death and the resurrection, the way that we see humanity, the way that we see the mountains and the trees and the galaxies and the universe, the way that we see pain and suffering is colored through the lens of Christ. That as followers of Jesus, we see things differently because Jesus is the light of the world. But apart from him leads to death and darkness and despair and hopelessness. And Judas is walking out of that door, into darkness, into the world. You know where that leads Judas, as we'll find? It leads Judas to death. And it's tragic because Judas had spent three years of his life walking with Jesus and yet succumbed to the alluring of 30 pieces of silver and walked from the light, utterly rejecting Jesus as Savior, and into the darkness. Whether we like to talk about it in this way or not, there is a vicious and violent battle of life and death, light and darkness. There is a spiritual war that is being waged in our souls and around our lives, and it is life and death. 
The Bible is clear about it. It talks about it all the time. That sin and death are at war against life and light. And that the enemy wants to do nothing except win your heart. And once you've surrendered to Jesus and he can no longer do that, he wants to win your attention. He wants to render you ineffective. But before you give your life to Christ, the enemy will do everything he can to lead you out of door into darkness. And that darkness is real. And it is desperate. And Judas has fallen headlong into it. You are going to face all kinds of realities about this battle in your life. You are going to face lies. You are going to face temptation. You are going to face struggle. Once you're giving your life to Jesus, and the enemy can no longer snag you for eternity. He is going to up the war against your existence because he wants to render you ineffective and he wants to render you broken. And so the battle of light and darkness and the battle of life and death is going to be raging in your life and the enemy is going to do everything he can to convince you that Jesus is not the great I am. That Jesus is indifferent to your pain, right? And that Jesus isn't who he says he is. And you are going to face lies and you are going to face temptation and you are going to face struggles that are going to try and push you, driven by the enemy, away from a relationship that walks in the light. What we know and what we're called to is to walk in the light. I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will never see darkness, but will have the light of life. I don't know what your life in Christ looks like. I don't know how your walk is. I don't know what's illuminating your path. I don't know how you see the world. But I implore you to understand that there is a waged war over you. And that we have got to cling to Jesus. Because the world is going to try and entice you. It's going to try and lie to you. It's going to try and sell you a bill of garbage. And we are called to cling to Jesus. He is the great I am. He understands your pain and suffering. And he is the light of the world. And a life that follows Jesus is a light that leads to life. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for who you are. For the truth of Scripture. For the very reality, God, that you have overcome death. There is no sting in death through Jesus Christ. And that God, as followers of Christ, if we have surrendered our life to Jesus, we are secure in your hand. But that does not mean the enemy is not going to try and wage war on our lives to distract and render us ineffective and breed us full of lies. Lord, I know that you know my pain and suffering, and I know that you're not indifferent to it. And God, I know that even this deep betrayal that you've walked through is for your glory, so that we, so that I might know that you are God. So Lord, this morning as we close our time in worship, my prayer is that we would trust and believe that you are God, that you know a pain of our human heart, that you are not indifferent to it, and that God, we recognize that walking in you is walking in life. And that if we've drifted from you, if we've wandered from you, if we find ourselves passionless or emotionless in our Christian life, to recognize that and long to be back in the light. Lord, walking in the light means that you expose some of the things in our life. While that's painful, it's also very incredibly important. So Lord, expose our darkness of the sinful heart and show your glory. Draw us back into your presence that we may walk in the light. And Lord, as we sit here and we close out this morning, if anyone is in this room that is 
found themselves wandering, drifting, or passionless in their walk with Christ, that you might reignite a passion in them to know you, to walk in you, to understand that you know a hurt and pain and that all of this is for your glory and that you are the light of the world. What would it take for us to fully trust you, to stand and walk in the light that is in us, dwelling in us? Father, to change the way that we see the world, the way that we see our pain and struggle, the way that we see people, the way that we see the galaxy, the way that we see everything is shaded in the beauty of Christ. Make us a grateful, redeemed people. In Jesus' name.